This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Flood-ravaged community of Grand Forks, B.C. say they're working diligently to get residents back in their homes. The regional district of Kootenai Boundaries Fire Chief Dan Derby says 47 firefighters are going door-to-door conducting rapid damage assessments so evacuation orders can be lifted. Our goal is to, uh, by tomorrow night, end of day Monday, to have as many people home uh, as possible uh, as we work through this rapid damage assessment process. And, and I would say that we're on target for, for meeting that goal at this point. Grand Forks was spared an anticipated second surge of floodwaters over the past two days thanks to lower than expected rainfall and temperatures. Rural firefighters in communities surrounding Brandon, Manitoba chipped in to help stop a weekend blaze that destroyed three buildings and damaged an apartment building in the city's downtown. Sewers Glenwood Volunteer Fire Chief Brian Parham says he was working on a farm 45 kilometers away and could see the smoke from the blaze filling the prairie sky. I hummed and hawed. I was loading fertilizer at the time. I said, you know what, I'm going to phone in and see if they need our help. Uh, first, first they thought maybe things were okay, but then, you know, the fire was jumping from here to there. Then they, they called back and said, yeah, if you could come in, please do. So I called four of my guys and off we went. Parham says his department usually responds to highway crashes. They're also trained for farm and river rescues. No one was hurt in the fire, but a 58-unit apartment building was seriously damaged. Over to the U.S., Texas Governor Greg Abbott has ordered a statewide moment of silence Monday morning to remember the 10 victims of the massacre at a high school in Santa Fe. Marcus Moore reports some of the victims are being remembered with funeral services on Sunday. Unimaginable grief, Santa Fe begins honoring the 10 lives cut short. Sabika Sheikh, a foreign exchange student just days away from returning home to Pakistan, remembered in Texas. Elsewhere, vigils to honor the victims and their families and support the wounded. A 17-year-old student is being held on murder charges following Friday's shooting. Scientists say a hazardous cloud billowing from where lava is pouring into the ocean off Hawaii's Big Island may spread as far as 24 kilometers downwind. The plume is condensed seawater laced with hydrochloric acid and glass particles that form when lava interacts with seawater. Marcy Gonzalez reports from the Big Island. Geologists say they still expect more fissures to open, the flow of lava into the ocean to expand, and possibly more eruptions from the summit of Kilauea. The area affected by lava and ash is small compared to the Big Island. Most of the island and the rest of the state is unaffected by Kilauea's volcanic activity. And police say it appears a driver intentionally crashed his car through a popular North Carolina restaurant, killing two people and injuring several others. Bessemer City, North Carolina Police Chief Tom Ellis. The officer got there, saw a car that was completely in the building of the Surf and Turf Lodge and um, saw multiple injuries. Sheriff Alan Kloniger says victims were police officers seated together at a table, including now-deceased Caitlin Self, daughter of the driver. Been employed by the Gaston County Sheriff's Office for four years. This young lady started out as a detention officer, worked her way up to deputy. Her dad, Roger Self, the driver is in custody as cops suspect the crash was deliberate. Chuck Severson, ABC News. Over to sports, the Winnipeg Jets NHL playoff run is over. The team's season ended Sunday evening with a 2-1 loss to the Vegas Golden Knights in Game 5 of the Western Conference Final. And in the MLB, Oakland beat the Toronto Blue Jays 9-2. From the Global News Desk, I'm Bailey Nicholson.
The question is, did you watch the royal wedding? But of course I did, darling. I stayed up all night long, all night. But then again, I am used to staying up all night long. Good evening. I'm Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show, a show all about health. It's been said, your health is your wealth. The benefits of great health cannot be overstated. Great health leads to a longer, happier life and even better relationships, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, relational, and yes, 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 even sexual health, uncovering what lies beneath the covers. I have a passion for up-to-date health information to guide you so that the life you lead is the best it can be. Please put the kitties to bed as listener discretion is advised. We're slipping beneath the sheets tonight. On this program, my aim is to provide you with evidence-based information so that you know there are options for treatment. Please do, however, always consult with your health care provider or medical doctor. Good evening, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing all right. How about you? I'm fine, thank you. Did you watch the um, royal wedding? I didn't. I, I didn't have the dedication to stay up and and go through it, but I did end up watching, you know, bits and snippets the yes. the next day and the day after. Yes, and some it of seems you were like, like that. it's I, never ever ending. It's been I had like to see it in real time. <laughs> just I applaud, so I could say that. I applaud the effort. It's something that uh, I couldn't do, but I do know some people uh, who all who did do that who stayed up all the way through, and you know what? Good for them. I mean, I was never. Yeah one to to hate it or love it i'm just i'm happy for them they're getting married that, that's, that's great so sweet, Andrew. like that's awesome let them be happy but like i don't understand the fervent lover hatred that's where i sort uh, of draw a blank hello it's people i mean really <laughs> <laughs> human nature my foreplay was uh falling asleep at call the midwife so i think i did it in the op- i should have watched call the midwife after the wedding <laughs> i mean it depends on where you're going, but in chronologically, you would call the midwife after the marriage at some point. But Absolutely. But in some marriages, you might call the midwife first, and I fell asleep during some of that. So a few little <laughs> naps prior to pulling the all-nighter. You probably needed that. I definitely <laughs> needed it on a Friday night. Are you kidding me? Tonight on the program, we are going to talk about men in divorce. You know it's harder on them. Misophonia, marriage planning, and dysfunctional families. We saw a little bit of that yesterday. Psychopaths. Sex messages from advice manuals, watchful waiting as a treatment for cancer, and why some men believe they may have a sex addiction and more on the program tonight. But right now, a little marital post-mortem on the royal wedding, some fun and not-so-fun facts about the wedding of the year. The cost was $45 million. What I thought was, was, you know, just a drop in the bucket for them. I, I mean, that is one thing that does kind of annoy me as to who's actually footing the bill over there for that. But um, I digress. The only blood relative of Meghan Markle's or the Duchess of Sussex in attendance at the wedding was Meghan Markle's mother. I imagine living in the moment has never been more important than that day for this bride and her mother. Here's her statement on her father missing her wedding. I have always cared for my father and hope he can be given the space he needs to focus on his health. Translation, you've embarrassed me before, but you're not going to wield that power over me now. I'm getting on with this and I'm going to hold my head high and I'm going to walk into that church by myself, at least halfway down. In her feminist way, she did walk herself halfway down the aisle, only to be welcomed by Prince Charles who'd actually previously caused embarrassment to his own children as well. Parents do better, but we do forgive. That's the one thing about human nature. We do forgive. 
And uh, But some of us don't forget. Typically women don't forget. But, you know, my message there is parents do better. Think of your children. Once you have children, it is about them in many ways. Not that you create entitled children. That's not what it's about. But uh, sometimes you have to get outside of yourself and make some sacrifices as parents. The Twitterverse wasn't too kind on Megan's wedding dress. No one said a word about Harry's top and tails, I might add. You either liked Megan's dress or didn't like the Catherine Hepburn-style dress worn by this bride. Some felt it was too understated and, and felt it was too big for her, that it didn't actually fit her. And I imagine in her stress, she may have lost weight, as any bride might do the week before their wedding. But given the drama with her father, I would imagine she would have uh, taken off a few more pounds as well and someone who doesn't necessarily need to do that. Other people felt it was totally her, understated and classic. I loved her 16-foot veil, I have to say. And I love the Page Boys carrying it as well. Also, another little fun fact, Prince Harry asked Meghan's mother for her hand in marriage. Interesting. Um, As any good uh, boyfriend of a feminist would do. And something that I thought was, uh, oh, before I say that, the cellist was 19 years old and uh, was brilliant. There were 160 royal stalkers, and I was not one of them at this affair. Uh, But something else I uh, noted as well was, Oprah, Oprah's dress, which I felt was totally flattering on her. I thought she looked amazing. And I would look amazing, too, if Stella McCartney had been up the entire night before creating, recreating the original dress for me because the color was wrong. But when you're Oprah, you get to do that. Or if you're me, you get to buy a $30 dress at Winners, <laughs> which I did recently. And I was quite happy about that for a talk I'm, I'm giving in the near future about how to talk to people about SEX. I'm talking to uh, healthcare providers, uh, so I'm happy uh, to be doing that, sharing the uh, the knowledge, and hoping hoping to make people comfortable about this particular subject that remains taboo. Okay, back to the church. Harry's longtime ex girlfriend Chelsea Davy was at the church, and she was looking as though she'd wish she had brought her gallon of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I think um, because it would have been tough for her. But you know, who knows? Perhaps they are actually friends. Uh, she did uh, attend with a, a gentleman on her arm, and, and then another. There was another woman there with her as well. So, but maybe they are actually friends. They did go out for seven years, but uh, some people can do that, and some people don't. Megan's ex husband was not invited. He was not afforded the same. Uh, uh, invite as the ex-girlfriend of Harry. Um, he is too busy writing his little revenge movie of the week. Um, yeah, so those are some interesting things. There was so, so much information, so much pomp and circumstance, as only the Brits can do. Um, and, you know, we all admire it uh, around the world, you know, view it um with happiness for the new couple and and also looking forward to what is to come. I think she will change uh, the royal family's presence in the world. And I think she likely, although she's not going to be allowed to do things like take selfies anymore. um, I, you know what? I would not take selfies if I could marry Harry. Um, It's the thing is though, anybody in the whole world would have married Harry. He's not even good looking (laughs) in my opinion. Um, But who wouldn't marry him? become a princess, (laughs) a feminist princess. That's actually far more appealing than uh, princesses uh, past and how some of them behaved or some of them were forced to behave. Um, 
Yeah, so we we did remember Princess Diana at the wedding. She was there um, in spirit, uh, in the forget-me-not flowers, and in, in many other ways. And I think she would be very proud of her sons today. Although not all girls around the world are quite as privileged as princesses, or even Meghan Markle, now the Duchess of Sussex, who was actually, by in her own right, a privileged girl. Her father won $750,000 in a lottery, and that afforded her the access to great education um, throughout her life because he won it when she was a young girl. But what about immigrant girls? They, too, deserve, at the very least, a safe and stable future. After the break, Lauren Blodgett, a graduate of Harvard Law School, will join me to talk about the truly marginalized children of the world. I'm Maureen McGrath, and you are listening to the Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. This is Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. If you have any questions for me, you can call me 1-877-399-9898, or you can email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com. We hear lots about illegal immigrants in the news these days, especially in the United States. Thousands of children are apprehended by immigration officials while entering the U.S. or, US or Canada. Approximately 60,000 enter the U.S. each year and about 6,000 in Canada. Many of these children are unaccompanied and are seeking refuge from abuse and maltreatment. Others arrive with parents or family members unable to or unwilling to care for them. Because the immigration process is a civil system in the U.S., aliens there are not entitled to legal counsel at government expense. As a result, many immigrant children face a complex system on their own. Lauren Blodgett is on the line. She's joining me to talk about a solution to this problem, the Safe Passage Immigration Project. Lauren Blodgett is a Harvard-educated attorney living in New York who understands the unique trauma that children face, especially victims of sexual exploitation. Lauren Blodgett is involved with the Safe Passage Project, which addresses the unmet needs of immigrant children living in New York by providing legal representation to empower each child. She is also a Brooklyn Magazine 30 Under 30. Good evening, Lauren. Thanks for joining me. Good evening, Maureen. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. I'm excited to chat with you. Great. I'm so excited to have you on another feminist in the world. <laughs> yes. Yes. We, yes. Saw, we saw the Duchess Definitely. of Sus- Sussex yesterday uh, demonstrating her feminism. And uh, for, let's just get started with what is the Safe Passage Project? Sure. So the Safe Passage Project is a nonprofit organization in New York City, and we provide free legal representation to immigrant children under the age of 21 who the U.S. government is trying to deport. So our job is to represent them in immigration court and work with them to obtain immigration status in the United States. And what are some of these children fleeing from? So the children are fleeing all different forms of abuse. Uh, Many of them are coming from Central America. And the children that I work with most closely are young women and girls who are fleeing gender-based violence. So that's anything from sexual assault to physical abuse, harassment, and even trafficking. And so once they come into the U.S., they are, are they, they're apprehended by immigration officials and their, their pathway is uncertain. Is that a fair statement? Yes. So 
Most of the children that we work with, they cross the border um, between Mexico and Texas, and they are apprehended by immigration officials. And most of them, actually, they'll run right up to the immigration officials because they've just completed a really long, dangerous journey fleeing abuse in their home country. So they arrive in the United States and they think, oh, finally, I made it. There's a man dressed in a uniform. He looks like he'll help me. And so they they turn themselves over. They run right up. Sometimes the little children even jump right into the arms of the immigration officials. And um, they are then detained and they are put into removal proceedings. So that's deportation proceedings. And a lot of them are released to a relative, uh, some trusted adults throughout the country that they can stay with while their deportation proceedings are pending. So that's how we meet the children that we represent here in New York. They're um, in immigration proceedings, but they're living with somebody who was already living in New York. And I suppose those little girls, and um, even if they are living with family, they're once they've arrived into the U.S., they've effectively been re-traumatized. They think they have arrived safely and somebody's going to help them, and they're basically informed that they're going to have to leave. Exactly. They have to participate in a legal process where they don't have the right to a free attorney. So, um, you know, it doesn't matter how young you are, you are expected to represent, represent yourself in immigration court or pay for a private attorney. And I have children as young as two years old are my clients. And um, it's just a really appalling image to think of. Uh, One of my clients, she's eight, and the first time I met her was in immigration court, and she's sitting in a courtroom, and there's a judge in the front, and then on the left side of the court is the government represented by ICE attorney. And then on the right side of the court is a little eight-year-old girl with long black hair pulled into pigtails and a little pink fluffy dress. And she's so little that her feet are swinging beneath her at the chair. And, um, you know, she's completely alone. She doesn't have anybody on her side. She doesn't have legal representation. And these are really complex immigration laws and cases. So I can't imagine not speaking the language, being eight years old, and being expected to represent yourself in that setting. And But luckily, that's what we do at the Safe Passage Project. We actually go into immigration court and we offer free legal screenings to people who don't have attorneys. And that's how we actually meet most of our clients. And we uh, that we'll ask the judge for a continuance and then we'll give the child a screening and learn a little bit more about their life and their story and figure out how we can help them. How can anybody in their right mind actually expect a two-year-old or a four-year-old or eight-year-old for that matter who doesn't speak the language, a two-year-old who probably doesn't even speak yet, to represent themselves in the court of law? Right. I mean, it's a civil procedure, so you don't have the right to a government-provided attorney. And... That's the system that we operate under right now, and it's really, it's really rough. And even if you do have an attorney, it's still really, really difficult. Um, you know, my eight-year-old client, we we had to prep for an asylum hearing, so that's a full legal case. Even if you're eight, it, we had to include 
evidence. We had to have written and oral testimony from my client. I had to put together, um, arrange for psychological evaluations. I had to put together legal briefings. And on the day of her hearing, she had to, you know, she had to talk about the abuse that she suffered in El Salvador. And it was it's really awful to see that they have to go through that, but that's what the process requires. And that's, once again, re-traumatizing a, a young child, which sounds barbaric at this stage of the game. And and was that sexual abuse that she had suffered? Yes. So um, the case that I'm thinking in particular is, um, it's a really special case. It's my eight-year-old client, and we'll call her Lily. And I think her case really demonstrates some of the kind of extreme beauty, but also the darkness of the immigration process and even the the human experience. This is a girl that um, she's eight. She lives in Brooklyn right now, um, but she was raised by her mom in El Salvador, and she was abandoned by her dad when she was a baby. And when she was four, her mom had to come to the U.S. to try to make some money to raise her so she left Lily in the care of her aunt and her grandmother and from ages four to seven Lily suffered some of the worst abuse you could imagine Um, and I won't go into every detail because it's really heartbreaking to hear but um, she had to sleep on a towel on the floor of a closet she was physically abused by her aunt um, which included like spitting on her dragging her by the hair whipping her with tree branches, uh, and then she was sexually abused by her uncle. It sounds and absolutely... it was so bad that her, her teachers actually saw the bruises and saw that she was in really bad shape. And, and Lauren, I'm just going to have to go to break. US. I'm just going to have to go to break. I'm going to ask you to hang on. Yeah. We're going to hear the end of that story when I come back. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening okay. to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. We're continuing our conversation with Lauren Blodgett, a Harvard-educated attorney living in New York City who understands the unique trauma children face, especially victims of sexual exploitation, when they try to enter the U.S. as an immigrant. She is involved with the Safe Passage Project, and she is talking about a bone-chilling case that she's very passionate about and obviously means a lot to her about a young eight-year-old girl Mm -hmm. who she helped uh, to hopefully uh, gain access to um, living in the U.S. But we don't know the end of the story. Thanks for hanging on the line with me, Lauren. Hello? Hi, Maureen. Sorry, you were cutting out a bit. Oh, no problem. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. All right. So you were talking about this little girl who's eight years old, who's a special client of yours. Yes. Yes. So, um, so Lily, she, as I was saying, she was basically suffering horrific physical and sexual abuse. And it became so bad that her teachers noticed the bruises and called her mom in the U.S. And Lily ended up fleeing El Salvador and came to New York to be reunited with mom. How did she and get? I, how did she get to New York? I saw her in immigration court alone. How did she get to New York, Lauren? A, oh, sorry. Sorry. How did she get to New York as an eight-year-old? Um, the immigration officials, they, the authorities, they transferred her to New York because she had the information and the address and everything for her mother. So no, but how did she get from the background checks and release her to mom? But how does she flee to the U.S. in the first place? Who brings her as an eight-year-old child? 
from her home country. She came alone. She came alone. She, yeah, she walked and took buses and trains and, um, Basically, I think she came with a group from her home village, but it was people that she didn't know. Amazing. But it was like her only option. She had to leave that situation. Wow. And many of our clients, they do that. So the journey alone is can be as traumatizing as what they're fleeing. Wow. It's amazing. And so you met her in immigration court? Yes, I met her in immigration court. I asked her if she needed an attorney, and then I sat with her and her mom. We squeezed into the back of uh, the back corner of an unused courtroom, and I did an intake where I basically asked them to tell me, a complete stranger, every detail of their life so that we could hopefully take on their case for free or at least refer them somewhere. So we were able to take her case, um, and I was her attorney. So we signed the retainers, and then I teamed up with our social work team that we have on staff, two incredible women, um, Sam Norris and Loretta Lopez. And basically the three of us worked side-by-side on her case for the next six months, where we had to meet with Lily elicit all the details of her story and prep her for her asylum hearing. Um, and it's, it's really serious business because we take the re-traumatization very seriously. So we would bring silly putty and fidget spinners and coloring books, really anything to make that experience more comfortable for Lily. And um, she was really drawn to art and to specifically drawing portraits as kind of her release and the way that she would express herself. So we would meet in my office and I would be preparing her and going over testimony and she would be drawing these beautiful, beautiful works of art. And I've, I mean, they're just, they're incredible. And I've actually kept many of them in her file because they're, I mean, they're chilling for me to even think about. Um, And I think they were important way for her to kind of retell her story and work through some of the trauma that she's gone through. That's amazing. And Um, how did her asylum? And then when we had, we had her hearing in December and Mm -hmm. we actually ended up having a male asylum officer, which was really difficult for Lily given her past abuse, but he was extremely kind and he actually let her draw during her hearing, which was not required of him and maybe wasn't even allowed, but it allowed her to be really brave and really calm and deliver her testimony in just a breathtakingly um, inspiring and resilient way. And um, one of my favorite memories of having this job was at her hearing, I gave my closing argument and Lily jumped up out of her chair and threw herself into my arms and gave me a hug and it was like really one of the most special moments of my life um, because she's so young, but she she knew what was happening and she knew that she had a team of people who were there fighting for her and who believed in her. And uh, one month later, we got the decision in the mail and she was granted asylum. Fantastic. So she can stay legally in the United States and it puts her on a path to become a citizen one day. 
And perhaps... A, so it's a, it's a tough story, but it has a happy ending. <laughs> exactly. Perhaps she'll become a, a well-known artist one day, thanks to all of, <laughs> all of your great work. Well, I love your passion. I love the work yeah. that you're doing. It's amazing. I mean, there's a lot of uh, legal work that you could be doing that may not uh, serve mm-hmm. your heart as much as this does. And, and mm-hmm. for that, I honor you and uh, namaste to you. Um, it's, it's Thank incre- you. Thank it's, you so much for putting the spotlight on these stories. And I think it's exposure and the awareness is so important. And it's the first step well, towards empathy and kindness and making it a better country for immigrants to live in. For sure. So I and really we, appreciate it. Oh, not at all. And we have this idea yeah. in our heads that, uh, you know, all like all immigrants are adults and that they're uh, dangerous and nasty. And that's not necessarily the case. Many of them, that's not the case, as yeah. outlined by the numbers, are children. So thanks so much, Lauren Blodgett, for your phenomenal work with the Safe Passage Project. I'm Maureen McGrath, and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thank you so much for being here with me this evening. It is always my pleasure to be here with you. Well, the Internet was a buzz this week with whether or not you heard Yanny or Laurel, and that drove some people crazy. I, of course, heard Yanny, not of course, but I heard Yanny repeatedly over and over again, but didn't really phase me one way or the other. But what if small noises angered you or bothered you tremendously? I had a couple in my clinical practice who were bothered by the noises that bothered the husband. And this was the relationship issue that they presented with. Some research indicates that misophonia may be quite common, and it occurs in about 20% of the population. Misophonia is defined as severely negative reactions to sounds that have a specific pattern, meaning, and context to the sufferer based on previous experiences. And there are some other types of sound sensitivity as well. There, You can have a negative reaction to a sound due to particular physical characteristics like volume, type, and intensity. And then there's phonophobia, a fear of certain sounds risk factors, it has been thought or widely held that misophonia risk factors include having a mental disorder or another hearing disorder. And prepubescent girls tend to develop the disorder more often than any other group. Some of the the approaches that are used to treat misophonia have been tinnitus retraining therapy or TRT, cognitive behavioral therapy, adding background noise to the person's environment and deconditioning the sufferer to their negative reactions. Well, this particular couple um, got into a little bit of trouble, I will say, because they were bothered, well, he was bothered by wind chimes (laughs) that were hanging outside of uh, the condo in which he was living. Now, we hear a lot of issues. uh, We've had Paul Mendes, a strata lawyer, uh, on this program multiple times in the past about strata issues. And uh, But he hasn't addressed this one yet, um, but I'll have him back. Um, this is a, a, a noise violation, basic, violation, basically, a nuisance. And so the husband of this couple was extremely bothered by wind chimes. He was so bothered by the wind chimes that he called the police, actually. And believe it or not, the police didn't think he was crazy. They actually validated his concerns. They were like, yeah, sure, that would drive me crazy, which drove the wife crazy. Anyway, and this is not the only issue of around noise that has occurred with this husband in this couple. And so if she's emptying the dishwasher or if he calls her and she is putting 
things away in the fridge. He yells at her and says, you know, what are you doing? What is that noise? Can't you just talk directly to me? So this has caused great anger in the relationship. Uh, And, you know, some people believe that or have believed in the past as well that um, misophonia suggested obsessive compulsive disorder or an irritable personality. And it's easy to believe that it could be the result of an irritable personality because these people get incredibly irritated. But according to a study published in the journal Current Biology and highlighted by Tiffany O'Callaghan and New Scientists, the true culprit may be the structure of the brain. A team of researchers led by Newcastle University neuroscientist Subkinder Kumar recruited 42 volunteers, around half of whom had extreme misophonia. The other half served as the control group and played them several different noises, some neutral, some jarring, like the sound of a person screaming, and some that were neutral for the control group but known to be aggravating for people with misophonia, like the sound of breathing. You can imagine trying to fall asleep at night and your partner's breathing is driving you crazy. The study authors monitored them for signs of distress, both physical symptoms and behavioral cues, and observed their brain activity using MRI scanning. The only significant difference in reaction between the two groups happened, unsurprisingly, during the misophonia-specific sounds, when those with the condition showed physical changes that suggested they were entering fight-or-flight mode, a result consistent with previous research. Their brain scans also showed an interesting pattern of of activity. The misophonics had heightened activity in the anterior insular cortex, the AIC, the area known to play a central role in the system that determines which things we should pay attention to. When the trigger sounds were played, there were not only more activity in this region, but also abnormally high levels of connectivity to other regions. So the AIC is hyper-connected to structures that are involved in emotion regulating and memory. There was also increased connectivity to regions involved in the default mode network, which helps summon memories and processes internal generated thoughts, internally generated thoughts. So misophonia may actually be the result of misplaced attention. And the brain of a misophonic is wired to focus on things that other people normally can tune out. And also their brains are have more of an emotional reaction to those focal points. So it's, you know, what can you say? (laughs) Be quiet in your relationship. The funniest thing about this relationship, uh, this particular relationship issue that I thought was, uh, and I do take my work very seriously, I want you to know, um, but the fellow had me Google wind chimes and pipe wind chimes and the comments on wind like there's a whole of course a whole uprising against wind chimes they're even calling people who have wind chimes particular names that i cannot use on the radio um so this is uh, apparently a bigger issue than i realized i didn't realize 20 percent of the population had this issue i do know that when i've been on the phone myself people have said you know, certain people have yelled, I thought, which I thought was inappropriate, um, or just they've snapped at, you know, what are you doing if I was emptying the dishwasher or or doing some other household duty or um, grabbing some crackers? Uh, so anyway, it's a real uh, concern. It can affect your relationship. And um, yeah, so just in case, just chew with your mouth closed and be as quiet as church mice in your relationship. What if some other noises bothered people in relationships? Oh, no, the guys are okay with that one. Anyhow, uh, we're going to move on to um, prostate 
cancer. Have you been diagnosed with prostate cancer and your treatment is watchful waiting as opposed to chemotherapy? What is watchful waiting and why are we doing that? I actually have a patient in my clinical practice who is suffering severely. He's had a radical prostatectomy for prostate cancer and he is suffering with urinary incontinence and erectile dysfunction. He's in his mid to late 50s and he's an athletic guy. He's in great shape. He's in a relationship. And this has really stung at his dignity. And uh, it's actually led to isolation and depression. And uh, we talked about penile rehabilitation for him, which, you know, sounds about as sexy as uh, <laughs> opening a box of crackers. Um, but anyway, it's it's very debilitating and distressing for men. And so this is uh, why Watchful Waiting has come about. Uh, and it's it's a treatment option that has been around for a while. And about 10 years ago, um, <clears throat> most people, about only about 25% of people of men went for the treatment option as advised by their doctors of watchful waiting. Whereas today, 75% of men, so the tide has turned, uh, 75% of men are agreeing with their doctor and going along with um, watchful waiting for low-risk prostate cancer. So these men are forgoing aggressive treatment. And, you know, doctors are successfully persuading more and more men with low-risk prostate cancer to reject immediate surgery and or radiation in favor of this type of surveillance, this watchful waiting. And this trend, as I said, will spare men's sexual health and will, without increasing their risk of death, And not to mention, it will spare their bladder health as well, because many men start to leak urine. They feel that they can only face uh, wearing diapers, or that's what they're going to be facing. I do want to mention that there are actual cloth underwear. You know, it drives me crazy to see these pad and product commercials on TV, but there are actually underwear that are made of material. Uh, There's some made by a company called Wherever. They're actually jockey underwear, and they have a pad on the inside, an absorbent pad on the inside for men to wear. And, um, you know, it's much more dignifying. Um, but the the latest evidence that more men are postponing aggressive therapy unless their symptoms worsen has come in this rather large study that has been published um, with the Veterans Administration in the U.S. And it involved more than 125,000 veterans diagnosed with non-aggressive prostate cancer between the years 2005 and 2015. Researchers reviewed the former VA medical records, VA men and servicemen's medical records, and found that in 2005, only 27% of men under the age of 65 chose to forego immediate therapy and instead signed up for watchful waiting. As I said, the situation has flipped, and now um, men are, and the doctors are also um, taking uh, a a little bit more of a surveillance approach to treating these men. The data, I must mention, for men older than age 65 was also very similar to those men under the age of 65. This uh, study appeared in JAMA and was conducted by NYU School of Medicine in the Manhattan campus of the Department of Veterans Affairs, New York Harbor Healthcare System. And the data came from, it was a large cross-sectional study. It came from um, demograph uh, from uh, areas throughout the country, throughout the U.S. And this is an important study. Um, and until about 2010, when a man was diagnosed with prostate cancer, they were told, get your prostate out as soon as possible, as soon as yesterday. 
And so this movement away from aggressive early action is gaining momentum because it's being increasingly recognized that the potential harms that can occur in overtreating malignancies may never actually pose a threat. And also, there are so many great technologies out there today that doctors are getting much better at early detection. They are finding more cancers. And so they're finding some that grow slowly, and they're finding some that don't grow at all. So this is important to understand, because remember, when you have prostate cancer, the treatments that, even if it's nerve sparing, which is a bit of a fallacy, because the nerve superhighway that is is down there around the prostate is actually invisible. So it's invisible to the surgeon as well. And so they will say, we're going to do nerve sparing surgery on you, but that actually isn't true. They can't because they can't actually see those. Now, those with a, a finer hand and the uh, you know attempt uh, using their hand and also those surgeons who are more experienced in these types of surgeries, those are the doctors that you want to go to. You want to also have early treatment afterward. So you want to get right onto a uh, a program, uh, a penile rehabilitation program, which involves taking medications like the PDE5 inhibitors, so the Viagra, Cialis, Levitra's, Staxins of the world, as well as using a vacuum device or potentially, um, and also engaging in sex. You know, many men make the mistake, their doctors have prescribed them Viagra, and they think, well, they didn't hear it, they were stressed, whatever, and they think, well, I'm not going to be able to have sex. Why would I take this? It's for blood flow. It's actually to hyperoxygenate the nerves in that area. That's the theory anyway. And a lot of men have a lot of good results with that. So take those medications that the doctor prescribes for you. Uh, maybe get a vacuum advice. Uh, go to a nurse continence advisor who can advise you on bladder and um, bowel health as well, and sexual health, and um, and really deal with that aggressively if you do choose to have surgery or if you need to have surgery for an aggressive prostate cancer. I am Maureen McGrath. You are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.